You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Let's continue to pray. Father God, you've made Canada a dominion. And you have given us the responsibility of electing a government. And on the eve of the election in a week, Lord, many of us have already cast our vote. And we have been praying and asking you for wisdom. And Father, we're praying today that you might have your way, though it is hard for us to understand sometimes how it is that you work through people. But we pray, Father, for our government, and we ask you, Lord, for local MPs that will be elected and the prime minister that will be chosen. And God, we pray that you would have your way in this election. And Lord, if it goes the way we want or if it doesn't go the way we want, we pray that we'd be found faithful, faithful to live as citizens that reflect not Canada's values, but your values. So, Jesus, we pray for that, and we ask you to guide us, Lord, guide this country. Lord, now, as we open up your word, we pray also, uh, guide our thoughts. Lord, open my mouth that I might speak your word and open our hearts together that your Holy Spirit might have liberty to speak whatever it is that he, you want to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. So on the eve of the election, we're, we're all uh, watching and listening to local MPs and platforms of parties. We're listening to promises that are being made and we're listening to issues that are being discussed and all the different ways that party leaders are trying to outflank opposition and uh, cast scud missiles in other camps and and uh, produce some kind of a positive image that's going to grab your attention and influence you when you get behind that little square box and write an X in a square somewhere. And uh, the issues that are being brought forward are also being examined. What are the issues that are being voted on besides the leader that's being voted on? In addition to this, we are also hearing all kinds of promises, aren't we? I mean, we're just hearing all kinds of promises that are being made that when and if I'm elected, this is what I'm going to do. And, of course, the sad thing is that we all know that when the elected government comes into power, that from history, it's not always very true that the promises are going to be kept. Today, as we open up our scriptures, we're finding a moment in the life of one of the most powerful kings in all of history, and we see the first three things that he decides to do with his kingdom once he comes into power. I'm talking about King David, and I'm talking about a time in his life when he's finally given the throne of the whole nation of Israel. No longer a divided kingdom, he is now able to be the sovereign over not just Judah, but all the tribes of Israel as they come to Hebron and they they anoint him as king. And the first three things that he does are very significant. The first thing he does is he he takes his soldiers and he marches off to Jerusalem and he, he takes the city. 
kicks out the Jebusites who live there, and he takes the city and makes it his capital. The second thing he does is that the Philistines, who are now feeling threatened, come right up to the city gates, right up to the Jerusalem gates, and they put their, their soldiers in the, in the valley of Rephaim, and, and there David asks the Lord, what should I do? And he goes out and, and he drives them back to the Philistine country. And then the third thing that he does is that he goes to a place eight miles from Jerusalem and he takes this thing called the Ark of God and he brings it back to the city of Jerusalem and puts it in the tent where he had set up worship and he makes capital city also the worship center for all of Israel. This is what David does when he becomes king of the whole domain and nation of Israel. And this is a reflection of what Jesus Christ wants to do in your life when you decide he's going to be my sovereign. He's going to be my Lord. He's going to do the same sort of three things that are reflected in David. And we're going to look today at the scripture and see that these three acts, first acts of David, reflect the very first things that Jesus also wants to do in your life. First of all, we're going to see how he wants to overcome the residency of sin yet in your life. Secondly, he wants to overcome, help you overcome Satan and the devil and all the ways that he attacks right at your gate, right in your face. And thirdly, he wants to help you to see that you're made to worship him and fear him, not fear the world, and he's going to help you overcome the world and its influences. The three chief enemies of every believer in Jesus Christ is sin, the devil, and the world. And we see reflected in this passage those three enemies being confronted. The scriptures teach us that we live in a, in a fight. We live in a battlefield, not a playground. Somehow, we have been led to believe that we're more in a playground. You know, you, you look at television and you look at the world and what it's seeking, and you can see that, that we've been, been taught, we grow up believing in, hoping for, and working toward a world that is like a playground for you and I. But the Bible never promised the world to be a playground. It said that it's more like a battlefield. It's a war that's going on. It's a war zone. And to varying degrees, we all feel regularly the effects of our actions that are playing in a battlefield instead of taking up arms and fighting in the war zone. That's the scripture that we're looking at today. That, that we, instead of having this mindset of play, God has asked us to understand that we're in a war zone. Do you know that the, much of the Old Testament, the purpose of it, is to understand war and strategy. Kind of sad to say it that way, but you know something, if you've looked around, the world hasn't changed significantly since the Old Testament. If you've been listening to the news, you know that wars still go on in planet Earth. We still live in a world very much like Old Testament, where kingdoms war against other kingdoms. And we're asked by God, I believe, in this age to take our Bibles, the whole Bible, and learn from all that Scripture teaches. And one of the things that we, we see coming out of the Old Testament are clear principles and clear strategies on how we are to do spiritual battle. 
In Ephesians 6.12, we read, We fight not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And in today's passage, I believe that God gives us strategy and understanding of how to be effective in the spiritual battle. We saw last week, but that by the grace of God, David consolidates his kingdom and uh, unites Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, we read that the tribes of Israel uh, come and anoint him king. And today we're going to look at chapters 5 and 6, but I'd like you to take your Bibles and uh, take a look particularly at chapter 6 with me in our scripture reading. 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's a long passage, and so if you're not able to stand that long, please don't feel obligated to stand. But if you're able to, would you stand with me now as we hear the Word of God? 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning <clears throat> in verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of, of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the cart, the new cart, with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned to home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And she said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. 
David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. May God bless his word. You may be seated. What can you expect of the Lord Jesus in your life if you seriously make him king? There are three things that are reflected in this scripture that I'd like to share. And the first thing comes from the very first thing that David does when he is crowned king of Israel He is reigning over Israel for several years, and verse 6 it says that the first thing he does is he marches up to Jerusalem and he attacks the Jebusites. Now what's this all about? Well, David was strategic in choosing Jerusalem as his capital. You see, Jerusalem, the city, it was located uh, on the border of Benjamin, which was the tribe of Saul, and Judah, the tribe of David. Okay, so on the border between The house of Saul and the house of David was Jerusalem. It had never fully belonged to any of the tribes, though, because no one, so no one could accuse David of taking or playing favorites in his setting up of the new capital. But by this time in history, Jerusalem is already a very old city. It is over a thousand years old already, even in 1000 BC when David is king over Jerusalem. Seems like Jerusalem has been the center of controversy from the very beginning, and yet its name means dwelling of peace. Strange, isn't it? We cannot help but wonder at the significance of things even these days as on the West Bank we see this Palestinian-Israeli conflict continue to take lives, continue to give unrest in the entire Middle East. In Jerusalem... a a city revered for its holy place for Jews, Muslims, and Christians. In its long history since the 4th millennium B.C., it has been destroyed completely twice. It has been besieged 23 times by opposing armies. It has been attacked at least 52 times, and it has been captured and recaptured 44 times. And we can probably suspect that in the days ahead, This city of peace will have no peace, not in our age. I wonder if Jesus, even from his throne in heaven, as he looks down upon Jerusalem, still prays the prayer of what he said or pronounces the words that he spoke in in Luke chapter 13 when he is riding into Jerusalem and he sees the city And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I think that God's heart still breaks for the city of Jerusalem. In the time of David, it had had a shared occupation of both Jebusites, that's a Canaanite tribe, and Israelites, the Benjamite tribe. How did that begin? Well, if we go back in our scriptures to Joshua chapter 15, verse 63, we read there 
that it was actually the promised land of Judah that was supposed to occupy that land where Jerusalem stands. But it says in verse 63, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the day of Joshua, the Jebusites lived there with the people of Judah. Fast forward to the period of the Judges. And in Judges, we read that the people of Judah attacked the Jebusites. And later on, their brothers, the Benjamites, also attacked the Jebusites. But they were unable to drive them out. So chapter uh, 1, verse 21 of Judges says, The Benjamites, however, also failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. You see, Jerusalem in, in the time of David is the picture of the believer in Jesus Christ today who, having been told you can take this land, this is the life for you to live, chooses instead to make peace with sin, to allow sin to bed down in one's heart, thinking that this is as good as it gets, so instead of trying to dislodge sin from our lives, we, we simply cohabitate in the same body with duplicit desires, duplicit lords and masters, and we just make peace with it. We settle down and we figure out how to cohabitate in the same body. That's the picture, I think, of the first <clears throat> enemy that David helps Israel overcome. And uh, in this scripture, we see that um, parallel to that, Jesus, when he becomes Lord, takes aim at whatever bondage sin has caused in our lives. Now, you might be able to sidestep it. You might be able to put it in the sidelines of your life. You might be able to close the door and open another door and so on. But, but somewhere along the way, if, if Jesus is Lord, he's going to keep on coming back to that door. He's going to keep on coming back to that agenda. He wants to, to be Lord of all. And you know what? It's for your good that he doesn't give up on you. How good God is. The second picture that we get in this scripture from chapter 5, verses 17 and following is when he, he attacks the Philistines. And actually what it begins with is the Philistines attacking uh, Jerusalem. You see, when the house of Saul and the house of David were at each other, what did the Philistines do? The Philistines just stepped back and said, if you brothers want to fight it out, you just go right ahead because we'll just clean up the mess afterwards. And then along with that, we see in the scripture in, in chapter 5, in verse 11, the, the neighboring country to both the Philistines and Israel was Hiram, king of Tyr. And he is a, forming an alliance with David, and he sends all this wonderful cedar and stuff that he builds a palace for David as a gift. This makes the Philistines very very uncomfortable. Not only is the, the nation of Israel united under a very powerful king, but neighboring countries that are also enemies of the Philistines are also joining and making alliances. So what, is he, what do the Philistines do? They waste no time. Before David can consolidate this kingdom in Jerusalem, they march up to the valley of Rephaim, which is right outside the city gates. And there they camp, and they are going to lay a siege to to the walls of Jerusalem, and they're going to storm it, and they're going to take this king down. 
We see in Scripture that in verse 17, David goes down into the stronghold. We get a picture of the, the, the dungeons. We get a picture of the deep, deep floors beneath the city gates or the city of Jerusalem. And while he is there in verse 19, it says, it says he's in, he inquires of the Lord. What do we do? God says, go out, go out. You can fight them. I will give them into your hand. You know, it's amazing. So from going down in the stronghold, he comes up to the main floor. He opens wide the gate, and they storm out, and they fight the Philistines, drive them back to the Philistine country. A few verses later, we read that it wasn't much time later, the Philistines are back, camping right outside the gate. They're not giving up. This time, we read in verse 23, Again, David inquired of the Lord. And this time, instead of opening the front gate and just storming, God says, David, this time go around behind them. And when you hear the wind in the balsams attack, for there I will give you the victory. And God gives them the victory. Again, a whole bunch of Philistines are killed, and they're driven back to the Philistine country. What is this a picture of? I believe it's a picture of the believer in Jesus Christ and how we need to deal with Satan when he comes knocking at our door. It's a picture of how he attacks us, and whatever the form is that he attacks you in, it could be he uses fear, insecurity, a feeling of absolute insignificance, like if you died, nobody would even miss you. He uses shame. He uses past mistakes. He uses guilt and false guilt. He uses accusations. He uses discouragement. He uses loneliness. He has a whole arsenal in his quiver to, to aim at you. So however he does it, what's the response of the believer? David gives us an example. Go down into the stronghold. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of your new identity in Jesus Christ. That's a picture of the believer absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. That all the, all the enemy can come storming the gates, can, can go right up your nose in your face, can come and assault you and can, can make you fear. Etc. But you don't need, you go down into your, your security in Jesus Christ. If you know him today, you know what I'm talking about. And then when you're down there, you say, God, what do I do? I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling that Satan's just attacking me. And there you inquire of the Lord. And God says, guess what? I'm going to give you a victory. Here's what you're supposed to do. His plan is not the same the second time as the first time. And I believe that that is a picture of how we are meant to overcome the enemy. Even Ephesians 6 describes the armor of the Lord available to the believers to stand firm. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are able to overcome because greater is, is he that is in us and that we are in him than he that is in the world. We are able to overcome Satan in the power of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've had any encounters with Satan, if you even believe in the devil, I do. I've seen some of his power. I've, I've seen how he wants to mess with my heart, with my mind. And I've seen him do some bad things to people. 
And I believe that Jesus Christ is giving us a prescription here through David on how we're supposed to respond. I really want to talk about the third one, though, with the scripture that we read, which is really talking about how the fear of the Lord is meant to replace the fear of man in our lives. In chapter 6, the third thing that David does in his kingdom as a political leader over the nation of Israel is he, he goes up to a place called Kiriath-Jerim. It's eight miles west of Jerusalem. And he takes the Ark of the Covenant of God that has been absent from the sanctuary in Shiloh for decades. Now here is a story of David doing the right thing in the wrong way, right? Have you ever done that, done the right thing in the wrong way? Wrote the book, read the book, saw the movie, I don't know. Uh, we get a picture of that here. The Ark of God represents the presence of God among his people. Guess what was in the Ark of God? It, it, on the top of it, it had this picture of the angelic cherubim, and the wings just barely touched above the, the, the top of the ark. And inside, if you were to open, you wouldn't want to open it, you'd die. But if you were to open the ark, what was in there? There was the stone tablets that Moses was given on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. There was this piece of Aaron's rod, a little piece of Aaron's rod as the priest, Moses' brother. And there was a piece of manna that while Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, if you kept it a second day, it was maggots and it was rotting. But in the Ark of the Covenant, this piece stayed fresh. Interesting. What is that a picture of? I think that it's a picture, again, of Jesus Christ for us. That in Jesus Christ alone, we find our righteousness, the law of God, being satisfied. That in Jesus Christ also, we find the only intercessor that exists between man and God. And that in Jesus Christ, we find soul food that never goes old. Food for our souls in the manna that is represented. Another author says that, that the ark represents Jesus in the way that the only two materials that the actual box was made out of was gold and wood. Gold representing the deity of Jesus and wood representing the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is this God-man, fully God and fully man. It's an incredible piece of furniture. The ark had been captured by the Philistines several years earlier. We studied it some months ago in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when Eli was the priest over Israel and his two sons, Phinehas and Hophni, took that ark off to a battlefield and thought that it would be some kind of a wonderful a good luck charm to help them win. But they lost the battle and they lost the ark. The Philistines take that box and they take it back to their, their central temple where they had their main god idol, that Dagon, standing there. And as soon as they put the ark of the Lord there, the next morning they wake up and there's Dagon on his face with his head broken off. They can't keep him. People are breaking out in sores. God's hand is against the Philistines. They send it to another city. That city also gets sick all over the place. They send it to another. After five cities, the Philistines say, we can't keep this thing. God is breaking out against us. So they send it back, and they build this new cart and a, and a, and a fresh pair of oxen. They just 
put that ark on there and they just send that team of oxen away. And they have scouts that are following at a distance. And it walks and it walks and it walks and it ends up at a place called Kiriath-Jerim, eight miles west of the city of Jerusalem. And there they stop. And it remains there for at least 20 years. The entire reign of King Saul, it is there. Because King Saul never really inquired of the Lord anyway. He went to places like witches and other people. Incredible time. Here it is. This is a moment. If you were to describe the biggest moments in David's life, this has got to be up there. This is a big moment in David's life. And so there it is. David, he wants to bring the ark of God to honor God. It was also a very wise political move to unite this tribal division and unite Israel under one place of worship and one God. As we will see next week, David brought, bought the property. David supplied so much of the materials, but it was for Solomon, his son, to build the sanctuary. And so the ark is mentioned 15 times in these 17 verses in chapter 6. And in the first attempt at moving it, it looks like David takes the cue from the Philistines because David build, builds a, a, a nice new ox cart and he gets a couple of oxen and he, he just puts the ark on there and they start going to Jerusalem and they're worshiping and dancing before the Lord with all their might until one young man reaches out to, to, to steady the box because the oxen are stumbling and he's struck dead. David is angry with the Lord Lesson here is that God's work done God's way will receive God's blessing, but God's work not done God's way is not guaranteed God's blessing. You see, in Numbers chapter 7, it was the Kohathites, the tribe of Levi, who were to carry the ark on their shoulders. But David had it on a cart. David took his cue from the Philistines, not the law of Moses. There's no evidence that even Abinadab and his sons were from the Le tribe of Levi. David was trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. He's afraid of the Lord. How can the ark of God ever come to me, he says. He's learning an important lesson about the holiness of God. Fear of the Lord. Take this being seriously. And so for three months, David stayed at home and he read his Bible. Three months. And he poured over the law of Moses and he came to see his error. And he hears about the blessing that's on the family, Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And so he goes again the second time and he, and he worships again and he, he offers sacrifices. He uses the Levite tribe. They carry it on poles, the rings that went through this box. They carry it on their shoulders. And we read in this scripture that... that um, now it is, it is going up to Jerusalem. According to Exodus 25, it had been carried, it was to be carried and so on. And as they're going, 1 Chronicles 15 gives us more description of this passage as well. And in verse 16, it says, as they entered Jerusalem, David's wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, sees her husband dancing like a fool before the Lord in worship, and she despises him in her heart. Now, before we go any farther, I want you to know that I believe everybody in this room knows what despising someone in their heart means. 
I believe that you know intuitively what despising someone in your heart means. I don't know if it needs any explanation. You have, at some point in your life, seen someone do something or they have done something against you and somehow you have sneered at them. You have mocked them. You have judged them. Whether they're doing something of noble value or not, you have despised them in your heart. That's what Michael does for David. And later that day when he goes home to bless his own family because every family was getting the blessing, he walks in from this incredible day of worship and celebrating before God. This is the most important moment in Israel's history. He walks in so excited and his wife meets him at the door with a sneer, with a mock. How noble the king looked today, half naked, ahead of all the servant girls. Way to go, you fool. And David responds and he says, you know what? It wasn't before them that I was praising and dancing. It was before the Lord. The same Lord that rejected your father as king and put me in his place. And I'll even become more undignified. I'll even make more of a fool of myself if it means glorifying God. See, what's going on here? We have here a contest between the fear of man. What does my wife think of me now? What does the whole city think of my kingship right now? What does man think of me right now? And the fear of God. What does God think of me right now? Friends, I believe there's a really important lesson here. And the lesson has to do with worship. And how the world does it and how we're called to do it. It was more important to David what God thought than what others thought. You see, friends, the church does not have a corner on worship. Worship is going on all around us all the time. We see it in the things that people buy and the hobbies they choose and the things they get excited about and the activities they choose and, and whatever it is that they indulge in, that's where their worship is taking place. Every human was made to worship. And the world looks at you and I and if you're crazy about Jesus Christ, the world looks at you and I and says, you're crazy. Why aren't you worshiping what we're worshiping? And they despise you in their hearts. And they sneer and they mock. See, the difference is that our worship is centered on Jesus, His holiness, the fear of the Lord, instead of worshiping in the world that is so often rooted in self, in the fear of man and what others think of us. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll be able to identify areas in your life where you have conformed to the world out of the fear of man instead of the fear of the Lord. And so if you buy something or you don't buy something, if you do something or you don't do that thing, if you go on a mission trip or you go on a vacation, 
If you give more money to the church or you don't give any money to the church. If you serve on a weekly ministry or you don't serve on a weekly ministry. If you attend church regularly or you don't attend church regularly. If you raise your hands in worship or you don't raise your hands in worship. If you put more money on the plate or you don't put more. All the things that you could describe around whatever it looks like to be a disciple and a worshiper. God is more interested in why than what. Why? And the reason is because why reveals your heart. (laughs) Raising your hands in worship doesn't reveal your heart. Keeping your hands down in worship doesn't reveal your heart. Putting a lot more money on the plate or not doesn't reveal your heart. It's all about why you're doing it. God sees that heart. And so when Christ is fully Lord of our lives, he will lead you and I in overcoming sin that is duplicit in our lives. He'll lead us to overcome the devil and he will lead us to overcome the world that is causing, trying to get us to fear man and worship what they worship instead of have the holy, bright, burning fear of the Lord leading every decision, leading every act in our lives. There's some questions for reflection at the bottom of the insert that's in your bulletin. And before the worship team comes, I just want to review those questions that you might reflect on them before the week is out. The first question is simple. Is there there a way that you, like the tribe of Benjamin, have made peace with some sin, like the Jebusites? How can you cooperate with the Lordship of Christ in your life to overcome in this area. The second thing, how has the devil been messing with you? Have you been inquiring of the Lord like David did on how to overcome the devil's attacks? Have you invited other people into your life to pray over you in this need? And then thirdly, how how does the fear of man get in your way? How does the fear of man get in the way of the fear of the Lord in your life? In what ways... Has it hindered your life of discipleship and your life of worship? May God bless you. Art was like a house with quite a few rooms in the house. And when you went inside my house, all the doors to the rooms were closed because each room had its own thing. Some rooms were wonderful. I could come to church on Sunday morning and open the door of hymns and praise and singing. And at the end, when I left church, I could leave and shut the door. Because some of the other rooms had shameful things. And I could go there. And I did. And after I finished all the stuff and felt all the shame, I could close those doors, go somewhere else. As if the house was made by 15 different architects. And each room had nothing to do with anything else. That's duplicity. 
That's not having singleness of heart. And for me to find simplicity, a single presence of God through all the rooms has been a long and tedious journey. But I'll encourage you, each, to move on the journey from duplicity to simplicity. Oh God, you who simply sit on a glorious throne in heaven, and there is only one room there, we come to you with our duplicities, just like the children of Israel. We wonder why they can sin so often. But you know, we do it too. We, we, we're comfortable with our little set of sins. Because we can just shut the doors. But oh God our Father, because we keep on shutting the doors and because we're sort of split in our personality, our spirituality, we're lonely and we struggle. And we're empty. Oh God, come into our hearts. Be King of Kings and Lord of Lords and fling the doors open. And let me be one in your name. Amen.